As you can see before you, I want to talk with you about a subject that I believe we've spoken on this passage here a few years ago. But I have some other thoughts on it and reading it this week. When Jesus returns, will he find faith on the earth? Two, there's two basic views of, probably more than that, but there's two views that are somewhat common today in Christian circles about the end of time. Now, this is not a sermon about the end of time, but I want to kind of introduce it this way, that uh, one of them is in the view of premillennialism, which is the most common Protestant view of the end of the world or eschatology, things are going to get worse and worse until things get so bad that Christ comes and, and rescues us all and starts the, his kingdom, the millennium, when everything's going to be perfect, and then the, the dragon will be released, and so forth and so on. So that's premillennialism. And it's easy to look around you, oh, things are getting worse, so, so the world's going to end. I, I, don't, I don't believe that. I don't, that could be, but I don't think that just things being worse than they were in the 1950s means the world's going to end. Uh, could be. I'm not the one who's going to judge that. In fact, that's an interesting part about this verse we'll see in a moment. Jesus is commenting about the end of time and asking a question about what's going to be, what it's going to be like at the end of time. You'd think he would know, wouldn't you? But we'll come back to that. The other view is what's called post-millennialism. And many people in the Restoration Movement, um, where a lot of churches of Christ sprang from, you know, religiously in the 1800s, we're post-millennialists. That means that, that Christ is going to come back after the millennium in that things are going to get better and better until the end of time comes. And then Christ will come at the end of the time when things are getting better and better. And uh, people in, in many parts of history have thought that that world was get generally getting better and that this was evidence of the millennium. Of course, I think the church is the millennium, so we're living in the millennium. And the question is whether things are better or worse, and I don't know the answer. And it's easy to see that in many ways that things are getting better and better in human history. I think it's because of the gospel and the impact of Christ. Even the people that don't believe in Christ are impacted by the things he taught. Love your neighbor as yourself through the Old Testament, and then love each other as I've loved you. And it's better to give than to receive. These ideas have permeated human thought. Not so in ancient times. So, it's, it is better to be alive now than in the 1300s or 1200s or at the time of Christ. Where all the children, half the children, more than half the children, don't die when they're infants or when they're young. And where people can live productive lives. Where they can fix your eyes. They can fix your ears. They can fix broken bones. You don't, so many dread diseases are if we think COVID is bad, we just haven't read much history. I'm sorry to say that to you, especially if you had a bad cold with COVID or you're sick. Or maybe you lost somebody you know. But I'm saying in general, the plagues of ancient times were much worse and devastating on society. Why is that? It's because God has blessed us with knowledge about his world that he, we live in. And we've been able to, even though it, it, it started off bad, we've been able through learning to me, ameliorate the difficulties with COVID much more. so, And that's been true of all the different pa pandemics or epidemics. Well, we're so important today, we have a pandemic. People just used to have plain old epidemics. You know, like the Black Plague, which is an epidemic. 
But we got pandemics today, so we're so important. But anyway, um, black play, what, killed 20% of people in Europe? Something like that? Anyway, but it was just an epidemic. Uh, there's a lot of evidence that things are getting better than they were. You live in a time you have uh, sanitation, and you have clean clothes, and you have air conditioning, and you have all the food that you want. We live in a time of relative peace for most people in the world. Not everywhere, not 100%, but people look at the fact there's not 100% peace and say, oh, it's terrible. They have no idea what the ancient world was like. And, and so are, is there evidence that Christ's kingdom has brought about better situations for all men? There is plenty of evidence for that. But we, we tend to focus on the negative aspects of that, and we want to live in a utopian world where everything is perfect and it's never going to happen. What we see in the Bible, though, is that Jesus at times, it's almost like he gets discouraged. I know that feeling because I've been discouraged for a while now, but, but uh, Jesus at times seems discouraged. I know in Matthew 11 he was discouraged. Here, I'm not sure, but this is an unusual parable. Notice what it says here in Luke 18. Then he spoke a parable to them. That men ought always to pray and not lose heart. We're not told the purpose of most parables. But here, we're told the purpose of this parable. This is why he told it. To teach this lesson. Two lessons. Maybe it's the same lesson. That men ought always to pray and not to give up or faint. uh, uh, Lose heart. And he said, here's the parable. There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now I can tell you something. I'm going to get ahead of the sermon here today. I knew I would. Those two things go together. When people and judges do not believe in God and fear the God of heaven, they do not regard men. They do not care about humans either in reality. They only care about the political forces around them, their own philosophies. They don't care about the people around them. They don't care about human beings. And we see this all the time. So not fearing the Lord and having somebody above your head, knowing that you've got somebody above you that's in control of you, is a big factor. Even atheists like Christopher Christopher Hitchens, toward the end of his life, he he said this in some articles and interviews, that even though he didn't believe in God, he, he was beginning to see that belief in God was important because without it, men just did whatever they wanted to do. And it was destructive. They lived personally destructive lives, and they became destructive to other people without a belief that something was over them. And so even atheists can see the practical benefit of that. So if you have a judge that does not fear God or regard God, he will not regard men. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, get justice for me from my adversary. Avenge me means you get you make sure that you get this. She, she apparently had a, a, a suit against this man, what we would call a lawsuit, or she had some reason that he should be paying her money, or he had taken something of hers, and he, she went to the judge to get some relief for this. Being a widow, she didn't have any resource of her own, most likely. I think that's the way he uses the widow here. Not all widows were poor. We know this from the Bible. But the way it's used in the Gospels is these widows didn't have any income. They had no one oftentimes to take care of them. And so she goes to the judge. Just what we would do. We would go to the courts to get relief in a situation. And she says, you avenge me on my adversary, somebody's against me. They're persecuting me. 
And he would not do it for a while. But afterward, he said with himself, though I do not fear God nor regard man, I don't care about this woman, and I don't care about what people say God is going to do. Yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. She's going to wear me out just because I know I can tell by looking at this woman. She's not going to give up. She's going to come all the time. She's going to, every day I open court, she's going to come and bug me. And so I'll just do what she says just so she won't bother me. Sounds like a great guy. The kind that we want on our city councils and courts. And believe me, we got plenty of them. Just because you're smart and you get into law school, I can tell you because i got plenty of friends there. Doesn't mean you're a nice person. Doesn't mean you're even a wise person. You see the word judge, you think, oh, this person's smart. They're wise. We equate intelligence with wisdom. What a, what a, what a mistake that is. No, and we equate education and wearing nice clothes with being nice. That's ridiculous to think that way. But uh, there's a... What do you call it when, well, never mind. I'm not telling any lawyer jokes up here. Uh, but this, this per, just because you go to law school doesn't mean you're a nice person. Then the Lord, and yet plenty of nice people do. Then the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said. Listen, now, he told this story and he said, now, think about what this man said. You can see this is plausible. Here's what he said. I'm going to do what she says because she's going to wear me out by coming to me continually. And then he says this. And shall not God avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? So he says, what the man, what's being said in this parable is if, an, if a wicked, uncaring man like this judge will do what somebody wants because they come and bug him all the time about it. What do you think about God? Who cares about you? Who's your own father? Who He's calling you his elect, his chosen ones. Do you not think he will help you when you come to him continually? You're really showing a lack of faith in prayer and a lack of confidence in God when you don't pray continually for the things that you want. He says, though he bears long with them, Though he, though he doesn't always do things the way that they want them done, he will avenge them speedily, meaning in the right time, quickly. And when, when God's vengeance comes, I think the real point here, when God's vengeance comes, when his help comes, it will come quickly. I can, you, you can see it, things get set up in societies. Great empires fall with a mighty crash. Uh, even my brothers and I, we'd play football with these kids and see they were bigger. We'd always say, well, the bigger they are, the harder they fall, right? Trying to bluff our way through a flag football game. Well, that's true. Great empires have often fallen very far. And world events, when we think situations are hopeless, world events, political events can turn on a dime. They turn almost overnight, it seems, and things begin to shift. Things get bad enough in one direction. And we can pray for this. This is what we should be praying for. We should be praying that God will suddenly reverse the fortunes of a country that he ought to condemn, the one we live in. And it can happen that way. And events can happen that just take us all by surprise. 
and things change overnight. I can tell you that even though it could be foreseen sort of in a way, for example, the bombing of Pearl Harbor altered my parents' lives, all the millions of Americans' lives then, from one hour to the next, their life was altered in a way that 9-11 never really did, even though we look at that event. Things changed. And sometimes you don't see how that's going to happen. And you're not looking for this event. God will bring justice to his elect. He will reverse their fortunes. And, and he's really talking here about the fact that his elect sometimes lose heart and give up and don't keep praying and don't keep doing what's right. But I want to focus on a couple other things. But I want to I highlight that last phrase because it almost doesn't fit the parable to me. Nevertheless, meaning in spite of the fact that God's going to avenge his elect speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Sounds discouraging, doesn't it? Here's Jesus, who is the Son of Man. And I think he's probably talking about the second coming here. I don't think he's talking about coming to destroy Jerusalem or something like that. He may be. But he even asks the question, will he find faith on the earth? It kind of makes you sad to be a human being, doesn't it? That the Son of God can come to his own, his own can reject him, even for all the things he did. And he has to even wonder, when I come back, am I going to find anybody that wants to go to heaven with me? Am I going to find anybody who loves me? Makes you wonder, doesn't it? Will he find faith on the earth? Well, I can tell you, looking around at the way things go, you wonder, don't you? Sometimes. When even people that claim to be Christians do the things that they do, not only just accidentally because they're human beings, but their doctrines begin to change and their, their attitudes begin to change. It's, a, it's appalling. The American Library Association, the big chief library association in the United States, just elected a lesbian Marxist as their president this week who wants to destroy all capitalist citizens and bring queer theory, what they've already been doing, into all the libraries. Have you been wondering why you see these new stories about the drag queen hour at the local library? You've been wondering about that? Why? I'm thinking, I know librarians, you know, the little ladies with the hairnets, you know, and big, thick black shoes walking around trying to be quiet in the library. I know librarians. What's with all these drag queen hours? Well, now you know. The whole organization is ripe with every kind of queer theory that you can imagine. A whole lot of them is rotten to the core. How, oh, not every single one, don't get me wrong, but enough of them to elect that woman as their president. That, that's enough of them, isn't it? It's like she's just one person on a board somewhere. And the school boards all across the United States promoting this stuff to your children, thinking it's a good idea. And now they're upset because they're being exposed for that. It's funny how they can say, oh, nobody's teaching that in schools. And then they're complaining because they're removing the books in the library. I didn't think you were teaching it. But you're complaining because you're removing the books from the library. You know, that kind. So the whole, the whole thing gets pretty smelly. And these are people, my point is, these are people that you ought to be able to count on to have you and your children's best interest at heart. Can you? 
You can't. That's the, that's the disappointing thing. And we've let it happen this way. Well, the Son of Man returns. And, and you know what? What I just said is called hate speech. And whole swath loads of people that call themselves Christians would condemn what I just said. That's how rotten it is. When a son of man returns, will he find faith on the earth? You can see why he might ask that sometime. What Jesus says, though, is we ought always to pray. Uh, Praying isn't necessarily our first reaction when we're upset or when things don't go our way. We might say plotting, we plot a plan, we plot ways to fix something, but sometimes things discourage us, and when we get discouraged, praying isn't where where it happens. You know, Jesus did miracles in Bethsaida and Chorus in Matthew 11, you read about these. He's doing miracles there, and the people there near where he grew up rejected him. And he upbraided those two cities and told them to be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than it would be for them in the day of judgment. And then he turns to the Father and he says, and I thank you, O Father, in that season, he says, he turned to the I thank you that you've hidden these things from the wise understanding and given them unto the babes. So Jesus, when he was discouraged, and I believe he was discouraged in that chapter, as a man in his work, he turned to prayer. But we don't always do that. But praying is a sign of faith in God's goodness. Praying always, continually, repeatedly, not giving up on prayer. And not praying just when you want something. Most of us pray when we're about to get in a car wreck, you know. And we start taking the Lord's name in vain when somebody pulls out in front of us or something, you know. And so we're praying to God. Lord, have mercy. That's a prayer, isn't it? People say that all the time. Do they mean that? No. It's a vain prayer. People say all the time. That kind of thing. No, this is a prayer, praying all the time, good and bad circumstances. It's a sign of faith in God's goodness. Look at this passage. It's an interesting place I ran across here from Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Jeremiah 9, 23. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. You can be proud of being respected for being smart. You can be proud because you're powerful. You can be proud because you got money. Glory in that. No, don't glory in those things. But let him, let him who glories glory in this. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. So if you want to glory in something, glory in the Lord himself and in the fact that he is good. That he is righteous. He will act true. That's the faith of Abraham when he says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? This is why Abraham turned to God in that situation. So praying always is, when we pray when things are poor, things don't go our way, when we're discouraged, we're showing faith that God is good and that he he knows what's good and he can make things good again. Praying always is a sign of faith in God's sovereignty. If you keep praying, even when you're discouraged and not faint, we have always to pray then you're showing that you believe God has power and has some control over these matters, which he does. Unfortunately, Jesus tells us in the very passage that he is long-suffering. He, he's very long-suffering with people that we, we wish he wouldn't be long-suffering with. And I say that tongue-in-cheek. 
He's kind of like, we're kind of like, you know, Jonah up on the hill waiting for God to destroy the city of Nineveh because they're such wicked sinners. And man, wouldn't you know it, they went and repented. And he got mad about that, sat up there and pouted, and God put a shade over him, took the shade away. You know, but God's long-suffering with people who are sinners. That's why the world may last a long time. He doesn't want to destroy any of these people. He wants them to come to repentance. Because he does love them. He, God, for God so loved the world that he sent his son. He didn't say God so loved the world so they can continue in their sin. He said he loved the world so he could, so they could, he could give them a chance to be saved. And so he's very patient. And that's why, for all you old people, I want you to remember, the good die young. Just so you know. Because he gives the people a chance. So some of us, he's given a lot of chances to get straightened out. And then he says, you need to pray and not lose heart. You ought always to pray and not lose heart. It means to faint, meaning to, to just give up from exhaustion or discouragement. Exasperation. Praying always is our, our response to discouragement. It's not, it's not a sin to be discouraged. Jesus was discouraged. Elijah was discouraged. You can go through the Bible and name many men and women who were discouraged. Discouraged. Now, if you take the old English meaning of the word, it means to, to take away or not have courage. But we've needed a lot of courage the last few years in this country. People have not exhibited courage. And the fact that they won't exhibit courage sometimes is discouraging to me. Discouraging to me. Which means lacking the courage to go on and do what's right. Lacking the courage to get up and carry on. And, and praying always is the heart of perseverance. It's the center of perseverance. Whenever I hear the word perseverance, I think of my grandmother, my mother's mother, mom. We called her mom. Because she, she really lived this. But, I could, but she talked to me about this more than one time. Having gumption, she would call it. And staying with something when it's hard. Not giving up. Not letting things get you down. She kept telling me this because I guess she thought I was discouraged when I was a kid. Dealing with different things. Stick-to-itiveness, they used to call it, an old-fashioned word. It's so extremely important in the life of a Christian. I don't think you'll, you will remain a Christian very long if you don't develop any perseverance. This is what the word patience means in the Bible. It doesn't mean just hanging around. It means undergoing difficulties but never giving up in spite of the difficulties. That's the patience of Job. It isn't just that he waited. He didn't give up in his waiting for things to get better. So it's the heart of that, not losing heart. So what we also know, though, is that God will avenge his, hear and avenge his people. In 1 Peter 2, beautiful passage, Peter says, for to this, this faithfulness you were called. You were called to be holy. For to this you were called. Because Christ also suffered for us leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. You are called to suffer for Christ. God called you out of the world. You heard his message, him calling you through the gospel. You heard that and you responded. He says, what were you called for? Well, you were called to suffer. That's what you were called for. You were called oftentimes to be mistreated, to undergo difficulties. There's a lot of ways which is much easier not to be a Christian 
than it is to be a Christian. You don't have to worry about right and wrong so much. You don't have to worry about a judgment day. You don't have to worry about all those things. You could be sleeping in this morning, getting ready to go to the beach anytime. Well, some of you are, I suppose, but when I mean, you could already be packed up and ready to go. Because you don't have to worry about worship or the Lord's Supper or other people. Do you realize how many Americans live lives where they don't really think about other people unless they get in their way at a traffic light? That's about when they think about other people. Christians aren't called to that kind of life. And I've heard more recently people that aren't Christians. This is something they notice about true Christians. Not just any old person who calls themselves, but true Christians. And I know who they're they're talking about. They're stunned by the fact that these people live their lives and they do things for other people without even thinking about it. Their whole life is oriented about thinking what other people need and trying to help them, like the ladies of this church do, for example. It's stunning to people that are, that are from other parts of the country or they're not used to this. They don't know what to do with it. it it's almost something that makes them back up. They're suspicious. Why is, this, why is this person being nice to me? I guess that comes from living in New York or New Jersey. Why are you being nice to me? You know, that whole thing. Well, maybe I'm kind of being sort of being funny, but it's, it's uh, not the way they act. If you try to, if you're nice, they think you. Uh oh, what's that person up to? What's their angle? It's a sad way to live, isn't it? But that's but Christians live a life where they put themselves forward to help other people, and it often to their hurt. But Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example, a mark, a print. That's the word there, print. That you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously. Now, there's a lot. I could preach a couple sermons there, but I, I always think of, when I read this verse, again, I think of my father in this case. I think of my dad in this case, because uh, my dad would go to work early in the morning. We live in Ohio. It snows sometimes. And he would go to his car, car parked out there. He'd leave the house, get in his car, go, go to work. And before, by the time we got ready for school to go to the bus, he was already gone most mornings. Well, I don't know how many times this happened. Probably happened once, but like most kids, I think it happened all the time. And, and anyway, uh, my brothers and I would get ready to go to school, and we see his footprints in the snow. And so we, did, we decided all the time, all the time, we're not going to make any other footprints and we would try to step in my dad's footprints all the way out as much as we could. Have we ever done something like that? And so, you know, of course, being small, you have to reach to get that footprint. And then the next one comes by, and you, and you try to get to the next one. And, not, and so that's exactly what this verse means. That's exactly what it means. We have to stretch. And we never quite make it exactly right. But he left a pathway for us of how to live how to trust God, how to suffer, unrighteous suffering. And we need to peep our heel prints and footprints in the marks that he left for us to go down. This is the being a Christian. The world doesn't understand this. It never will. It mocks you for being stupid, for trying to help people. And that, but this is the mark. He, he did not commit sin. He didn't, he, his mouth wasn't full of deceit. You know, we lie because it benefits us. We deceive other people because it helps us in some way. That's not Christ's life. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. 
When he suffered, he didn't threaten. So my brothers and I would wrestle, you know, and, and get mad at one another. We'd wrestle on the ground. One of them would get on. Finally, you get if you get lucky, you get down, you get your brother, you get your knees on his shoulders, and he can't buck you off, hold his hands down. You know, you got him pinned. And you can do whatever you want. My brother gave me a bloody nose, so I let my blood, bloody nose drip all over his face and into his mouth because he was yelling at me one time. He kept yelling at me, you know, insulting me, so I just kept letting the blood drip in his mouth until he shut up. We, I ate lunch. We're fine. We, this, he, he didn't do it anymore. He didn't do it anymore. Hit me in the nose because he knew my nose would bleed. I did, we, we, but he was reviling me and threatening me what he was going to do when he got... This is what we do when things don't go our way. We revile, we threaten when we suffer. Christ didn't do that. But he committed himself to him who judges righteously. What he knew in his suffering when people mistreated him is he knew that there was one he could commit his life to, his heart to in prayer, who would do the right thing. God will make it right. I cannot guarantee you that when you lose a loved one in this life, child or someone else, that in this world things will be better. But you can commit yourself to him who judges righteously. God will make that right. I don't know how he does it, but he will make it right. I have confidence and faith in that. He gives you back more than you ever give. If you give and you give and you put your hand out and help people, God will always give you back more than you ever give. Doesn't seem like that, but that's what God does. If you look long enough, if you can see, you'll see that you, because you commit yourself. So uh, there, we, we got to move along here and really wrap this up. Oh, hang on, I want to. Didn't mean to do that. <clears throat> We're gonna. I was telling Joel that sometimes in the song you just gotta, as I say in the Princess Bride, skip to the end. So I do want to make a couple of points. First of all, and then we'll stop real quickly this morning. You know, faith is only going to be needed on this earth. When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? It's interesting because that's the only place faith is needed. In a few short years, our faith will be turned into sight. Whether by the second coming or by the by our own death, our faith will be turned to sight. And the way we understand things to be, the righteous dead will be comforted by God. The wicked dead, guess what? They're now believers in torment. They're being tormented, but they're now believers. Okay, They weren't believers on earth. They didn't want to follow Christ. They rejected him. But now they find themselves locked in a place of torment and they now are believers. And so, well, I'm going to notice what it says here. He says, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. Every tongue shall confess to God. And so then each of us shall give account of himself to God. And this other scripture here in Philippians chapter 2 says, Therefore God has also highly exalted him. Given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Of those in heaven, and those on the earth, and those under the earth, the wicked. That every tongue shall, should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You can make that confession 
while you have a chance to enjoy the blessings of Christ. Or you can make it after you find yourself eternally locked in torment because you rejected him. That choice is your choice to make about when you will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so the question is a real one. When Christ comes again, will he find faith on the earth? And we don't, we have so many people, and it's a shame. I don't say that with anger, but it is certainly a shame that so many people are going to make the wrong choice. We mentioned this passage last week that we ought to have faith in him to consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. And that's what happens to us. We lose heart, give up. And I want to encourage you as we close this morning, don't give up. Don't lose heart. Don't be discouraged, not only by the things that happen around you in our society, but the things that happen to you personally. Don't be, don't be so discouraged that you stop praying, that you give up. Will the Son of Man find faith on the earth? I hope it can be said, if Jesus comes again, that he will find me faithful to him until when he comes again. I, I, I don't know that. I'm going to try. But I know that if I keep praying, he'll give me the strength to try to do that. And I want to encourage you to do the same thing. So we're going to sing number, uh, we can say some more things, but I'm not going to do that. We're going to sing number 255 this morning as we close our sermon. Think about this, and we're going to use this song as a means of encouragement to you to obey the gospel of Christ. If you're not a Christian this morning, come and on your faith in Jesus Christ as God's Son be baptized into his name. Oh, I know you may have been baptized as a baby, but come now as a believer that you have something to do with you. You come and express your faith in Christ and confess his name and be baptized for the remission of your sins. And if you're not, if you already are a Christian, but have neglected him, deserted him, shamed him by sin, come, we'll pray with you about that. God will forgive. Can we help you? Come right here to the front. Let's stand and sing.